This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Here on Watch with my name, I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. Today, COVID-19 has caused millions of infections around the world and over 180,000 deaths. The US, Spain, Italy and the UK are amongst the most affected countries. The outbreak has generated lots of questions on the disease itself, but also on other related diseases and comorbidities. To tell us what the guidelines say about these problems, we have on the line Dr. Abigail Davis, Section Editor, Emma Scott, Scientific Editor, and Dr. Sushita Shah, GP and Clinical Editor, who all work on BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. So to start with Abigail. Abigail, there are now guidelines on managing patients with lots of different conditions. One example is rheumatological conditions. Can you tell us about these? Yes, so MICE, the British Society of Rheumatology and the American College of Rheumatology have all published guidelines on managing patients with rheumatological conditions. And I've been looking at those this week because I've been editing our new topic, which provides an overview of the management of coexisting conditions in the context of COVID-19. That's now been published um, and you can access that on the BMJ Best Practice website. We cover lots of conditions, um, including rheumatological ones. So one of the big resources I've been looking at has been the NICE guidelines, and they emphasise that some patients with rheumatological conditions are at particularly high risk if they're infected with COVID-19. And that includes patients with cardiac or respiratory complications of rheumatological disease, for example, interstitial lung disease or pulmonary hypertension. So prevention of COVID-19 in this group of patients is really, really important. Another useful tip from the NICE guidelines is that we should bear in mind that patients who are receiving immunosuppressive medication may develop atypical symptoms of COVID-19. So, for example, patients who are taking oral corticosteroids might not develop a fever and those who are taking interleukin-6 inhibitors might not get a rise in C-reactive protein. Now, one message that's consistent across all the guidelines is it's really important that patients should continue their usual medication if they are well. They shouldn't stop taking their medication to try to reduce their risk of developing COVID-19. And this includes non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Patients can continue taking those. NICE give advice on whether to continue or stop medication if a patient does develop COVID-19. So if a patient is taking oral corticosteroids, they shouldn't stop these suddenly. And patients can also continue taking hydroxychloroquine and sulfasalazine. But they should stop any other conventional disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs, any biologic therapies or any Janus kinase inhibitors. And they should contact their rheumatologist for advice on when to start taking these medications again. The guidelines from the American College of Rheumatology differ slightly from the British ones. So they advise that if a patient develops COVID-19, they can continue taking hydroxychloroquine, but they should stop sulfasalazine. I'm sure you're aware there's been a lot of publicity about hydroxychloroquine as a possible treatment for COVID-19, and some patients have reported difficulty obtaining their usual prescription. 
the American College of Rheumatology advise in this situation, clinicians could consider whether a dose reduction or a temporary cessation, a drug holiday from hydroxychloroquine is possible. But they do emphasize that hydroxychloroquine should still be started at full dose in patients with newly diagnosed lupus. NICE advise that we should assess each patient to decide whether it's safe to increase the time interval between blood tests for drug monitoring, particularly if three monthly blood tests have been stable for two or more years. Patients who are starting a new disease modifying anti-rheumatic drug should always follow the recommended blood monitoring guidelines and timetable. Now, rapid rheumatology assessment will still be needed for patients with a suspected presentation of inflammatory arthritis. Um, and this could be with a phone or a video appointment initially, followed by a face-to-face -face review after confirming that the patient doesn't have symptoms. Thanks. That, that's that's really helpful and, and comprehensive answer. Let's move on to another uh, issue, uh, which is contraception. How should clinicians approach prescribing contraception during the pandemic? Well, again, this is an area where some really useful guidelines have been published um, from the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Healthcare, the FSRH in the UK, and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists. Now, for many women, using a progesterone-only pill will be a really useful option because there aren't the same physical monitoring requirements as there are for combined hormonal contraception. So this could be assessed and prescribed remotely. And the FSRH advised that you could give a six to 12 month supply of a progesterone only pill to new users following a full remote assessment. There will be some women for whom that isn't suitable, for example, women taking enzyme inducing drugs, um, and their guidelines explain in detail how to approach those cases. So if a woman is already using contraception and her blood pressure and her body mass index have been checked within the last year and they're satisfactory, you can prescribe a 6 to 12 month supply of ongoing combined hormonal contraception or a 12 month supply of progesterone only contraception. The subdermal implants and the Mirena and Levocert intrauterine systems can be kept for up to a year beyond their license, so actually routine removal of those devices can be deferred. So there's really a move to do as much as possible remotely, uh, but some face-to-face -face appointments will still be needed. So, for example, in the UK, the copper intrauterine device continues to be recommended as first-line emergency contraception. Assessment and consent for a termination of pregnancy can often be performed remotely. Um, and the guidelines say that women don't need an ultrasound scan unless their last menstrual period date is uncertain or they have any symptoms or signs suggesting an ectopic pregnancy. And medical terminations are preferred because women can then self-administer the medication at home. Men who've had a vasectomy but haven't been able to submit a semen sample yet should keep using contraception until they're able to. Okay, thanks, Abigail. That, that, that's great. Let's move on to Emma now and the subject of COPD. Emma, can you tell us about guidelines for the management of patients with COPD in the community? Hi, yes. Yeah. So um, interim guidance has been produced quite quickly in the UK by NICE and uh, the British Thoracic Society. And GOLD, which is the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, has also published some brief guidance on their website. In general, the guidelines say that patients should continue with all their regular therapies, 
according to their individualized treatment plan, just to try and keep their COPD under control and as stable as possible. So this includes all their usual oral and inhaled medications, oxygen therapy, airway clearance. Uh, for those doing airway clearance at home, they should be advised that inducing sputum can potentially create aerosols that contain virus. So they should think about taking steps to protect other people in their house, uh, such as doing it in a well-ventilated room away from others. And uh, similar precautions would be needed for those who have non-invasive ventilation at home. Of course, pulmonary rehabilitation in the community isn't currently possible. Patients can be directed to online resources and the British Thoracic Society does have some useful links on its website. There's currently no evidence that use of steroids uh, increases the risk associated with COVID-19. Patients uh, with COPD should continue at their usual dose. NICE also specifically states that if withdrawal had been planned, this should now be delayed. And if a patient thinks they're having an exacerbation, they should continue to manage this as they usually would with their appropriate corticosteroids and antibiotics as, as previously indicated. Again, there shouldn't be any change here in the context of the current pandemic. And NICE says that patients shouldn't be offered short courses of antibiotics and steroids to keep at home unless it's clinically indicated. For regular maintenance medication, patients can be prescribed enough for a 30-day supply, which shouldn't be encouraged to stockpile any more than that. Okay, thank you. And also there's been guidance on, on guidelines on nebulizers. I wonder what do the guidelines say about nebulizers? Yeah, that's that's quite an interesting point because uh, UK guidance in general, not just for COPD, says that use of nebulizers um, should continue as normal and that while they do generate aerosols, this comes from the fluid in the chamber and won't carry any virus from the patient. But other guidance, uh, for example, from the CDC in the US, and other statements published in Canada and Australia, and also from the Global Initiative for Asthma, uh, they all consider that use of nebulizers is quite a high-risk procedure as it generates potentially infectious aerosols, and they advise it should be avoided if possible. So it's obviously quite a difference there, and uh, guidance on this might change as more becomes known, so it's something definitely worth keeping an eye on. Okay, thank you very much, Emma. Now, moving on to Sushita. Um, the, the... Royal College of GPs has, has recently issued guidance about workload prioritisation for GPs during the pandemic. Can you tell us about this? Given the rapid and pretty monumental changes to how GPs are working at the moment, there's clearly a need to prioritise GP workload. So the RCGP and British Medical Association together have actually created some guidance around this. The main document is on the RCGP website and it's a kind of a traffic light system that categorises the services that GPs provide into red, amber and green. Usually when we see guidelines, for example, sepsis, red means urgent or higher priority. However, in this guideline, it's the other way around. So red means lower priority work that could be postponed if the practice has seen a lot of COVID-19 in their population. However, it will need to be revisited once the pandemic ends and recall dates should be updated where possible. AMBER means work that can be continued for the duration of the pandemic if time and resources allow and appropriate for the practice population 
regardless of the prevalence of COVID-19 in that population. And green is work that GPs should aim to continue for the duration of the pandemic, so higher priority work, regardless of the prevalence of COVID-19. The guideline acknowledges that GP practices in different areas of the country are going to be affected differently. So it does say that practices should use judgment and work according to their circumstances, both in terms of managing individual patients and in terms of service provision. The second thing is to do with the delivery of these GP services. In keeping with NHS England guidance, this should be done remotely and where possible, so either telephone or online. But if a face-to-face appointment is required, then full PPE must be worn in line with current policy. Okay, great. Thank you. And I wonder, could you give us examples of work that should continue and work that could be postponed? Yeah, sure. So in work, in terms of the, the work that should continue, so i.e. the green category, and this list is, is not exhaustive, but it includes things like urgent care for acutely unwell adults and children, um, chronic care for people with long-term conditions at higher risk. And the groups listed here are the more severe or poorly controlled people with type 2 diabetes, COPD and asthma, and also people with significant mental health problems. Cancer care should continue, including two-week weight referrals and ongoing care. Palliative care. Immunisation is really important in a pandemic to continue to vaccinate people against other infectious diseases. Um, And the guideline recommends that vulnerable patients in high-risk groups should be prioritised. Safeguarding. So the role of the GP here is really to recognise where abuse may be happening and refer or signpost to other agencies or support vulnerable patients as appropriate. Acute home visits to housebound or residential or nursing home patients do fall into the green category. However, only after remote triage and when clinically necessary. And um, you can use video assessment for this purpose. Also on the list of various essential investigations, treatment and paperwork that are described in more detail in the guideline itself. There's a quick point here about essential paperwork. Um, So the, the guideline advises that DVLA medical examinations for essential workers should continue. However, the DVLA have recently relaxed the requirement for bus and lorry drivers to provide a medical report in order to renew their licence. So it's worth having a look at their website. Um, And of course, in general, it's worth reading this guideline alongside other guidelines because things are evolving so rapidly. In terms of work that could be postponed, so the red category, This includes things like coil checks and changing the coil. And as Abby mentioned earlier, the Faculty of Sexual and Reproductive Health gives good additional guidance on this. Routine non-urgent screenings can be postponed. So, for example, new patient checks, NHS health checks, medication reviews, frailty assessments and over 75 annual reviews. Routine low-risk smears. Advice on mild self-limiting illness or advice on isolation for people with COVID-19. For this, patients can be guided to national websites. Uh, All GPs can use social prescribers or link workers where available. 
12 injections, this is coming up a lot in practice. And the RCGPBMA guidelines suggest that these could either be deferred all patients could be taught to self-administer or possibly switch to oral supplementation. And the British Society of Hematology has got a lot more guidance on this. And of course, there are other things like non-essential paperwork and CQC and appraisal that have been postponed. Okay, thank you very much, Lucita, and also to Emma and Abigail. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. To find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and to look at the content on this and other diseases. And do please look at it regularly because the content is being updated daily at the moment. Thank you once again.